Section six of Diary of a Suicide by Wallace E. Baker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section six. December thirty, nineteen twelve, six thirty p.m. A hurried writing previous to departure for Chicago. The past three months, ones of disillusionment and blasted hopes. Future uncertain, but atmosphere cleared for anything that turns up. Suddenly deciding last night, Sunday, to leave for Chicago, slept on more or less irregularly, and had trunk packed early this morning, previously ready for quick departure. Tickets, etc., by noon, theatre this afternoon, and everything nearly ready now. Turning point in so far as leaving future to chance, instead of carefully planned out course. Blank for my temperament to settle down to any such dull routine as seems necessary to get on as others have. Besides, I have lost a certain grip I had before the early part of this year brought on acute nervousness, and it needs quick action to put me into touch with life. Slow and sure is not my fort, but fast and intermittent, and I have to face it whether I will or not. Chicago, January 29, 1913 if I wrote that the last month was the worst I had ever experienced, I would probably repeat myself, as I have had some very bad and frequent worsts during the past year and a half, but nevertheless I never hoped to feel so utterly despairing this side of eternity. I arrived in Chicago on December 31, an hour before the new year. I was met by my uncle and proceeded to his house with him. He is a vegetarian, a raw food one, an ardent and unmerciful propagandist, his wife a chronic invalid, cold and lifeless. There was really no room for me, and I slept in an unheated room where they kept fruit and vegetables. It was cold, too cold to dress in without great discomfort, but Uncle said the air was good for me, and the fruit had to be taken care of anyway. Now I am generally open to reason and persuasion, even if I do act on my own impulses and ideas eventually. But I will not be forced. I have fled from one refuge to another in the hope of being free, of being able to be myself, and uncle's insistence on my not doing this and that resulted in argument, but no open break. The result was that everything seemed to fall from under my feet, and on January 10th, I made up my mind to commit suicide on my twenty-third birthday, May 10th next. Of course, this was not the result entirely, or even principally, of my trouble with uncle. That was only important in so far as it added the last straw to my blank, misunderstood, and, if not persecuted, at least worried beyond endurance by my relatives. My reasons in a few words for deciding on suicide were, one, disillusionment. What had sustained me through the mental and nervous shocks, sleepless nights, ecstasies, and despair of the years, since my sixteenth, although it began before that, was the thought, which I dare not acknowledge to myself, much less express to others, that I was, if not a genius, at least a talented man, with the ability to do big things. Sometimes business success appealed to me, at others science or philosophy mental and intellectual preeminence, then artistic effort, vaguely the idea of being an author, dramatist or literary and social reform leader. Up to the day I left Cuba, despite reactions and pitiful weakness, I kept my faith in myself, in my mission. Reading Ibsen only served to confirm it. In blank I still had it, I lost it in blank, to a great extent. 
After I had purchased a typewriter and sat down to work, my courage failed. I could do nothing. Reading Bernard Shaw showed me that much that I had thought to be artistic temperament, ideals, sentiment, was plain romantic illusion, and I did not feel that I was called upon then to sacrifice myself for humanity without the aesthetic pleasure my illusions had given me. Before this I had unwittingly cloaked my own desires and passions under the guise of doing something worthwhile, of uplifting and what not. Curiously enough, all my ambition, ideas, etc., returned on further reading of Shaw in Chicago, after I had started going on the assumption of suicide on May 10th. I took them back with the idea that now I was through with romantic illusion and prepared to face reality. Before recurring to this, I shall go on to the other suicide reasons. 2. The continual moving about, trying to find a resting place, and consequent disgust and quarrels with relatives, and the feeling that I was indeed alone and without a home. Leaving Cuba in hope I left blank, swearing they would never hear from me again. I left blank, with very much the same idea, but before leaving wrote a very short letter to Nellie, informing her that I had nothing against her, and thought as much of her as ever. Uncle was the last straw, although I could not have the least doubt of his sincere desire to benefit me, and when I realized this I tried to take advantage of his advice and follow it to a great extent. But his wife chilled me, and she really didn't want me. Of course she wasn't well, and Uncle told me that but for that he would have had me stay with them, and take a good room in which they had a rumour. Aunt had advised against my coming, she did not want to be bothered. However, all this only added to my feeling of loneliness, of homelessness, and I took a small room after sundry hints from my aunt. 3. Related to the above was the deeper feeling that I had not place in the world. Forced to work myself into a nervous wreck when I wanted to shine in intellect, laughed at by my acquaintances, for I had no friends, because of my theories, impracticality, temperament, inability to get on with people socially, due to a peculiar inherent shyness, not lost by contact with people in business, where I had a reputation even for nerve or perhaps sometimes impertinence, although I meant no harm. I was rather sharp in repartee, and suppose I showed a feeling of superiority, whereas said acquaintances, openly at least, made me feel inferior, unsocial, a crank, always in the wrong. What was the use, I said time and again, of my brilliance, of my love of study, of aesthetics, of my careful life, if it was turned on me and made into a fault, a crime? 4. Fearful of gradual approach of insanity brought on by above causes, and degenerate stock on my father's side. I have no proof of this, except that my father was small, nervous, and vacillating, and I am sure it is only my mother's blood that has saved me thus far. 5. The thought that my ideas, etc., instead of being due to higher qualities, due to this degenerate tendency, or strain, in short, that I was a degenerate weakling, doomed to drift on until insanity or death ended it all. The above caused my resolution to commit suicide, taken on January 10th. My hand is tired now, but I have much to write of subsequent days. I leave to-morrow morning for San Francisco, and shall fill in details to date either on train or there. Denver, Colorado, 
February 2, 1913. To continue where I left off, the sixth reason, the last but not the least, to use a hackneyed term is, six, sex. I have previously gone into this at some length, so little remains to be written. To use a medical term, I presume my affliction may be called erotomania. My passion, ungratified, except with mercenary women, has been a terrible thing. If I could have had a little satisfaction, even without actual intercourse, in my youth, as other fellows have, I might have been spared the suffering, mental and physical, caused by my random attempts to feed my insatiable hunger. Not having anything pleasant to look back upon in an emotional way has probably contributed more than any one thing to my despair of the future. When in desperation, just after my twentieth birthday, I first had intercourse with a prostitute, I made little distinction between moral and immoral women, that is, some women I felt naturally attracted to, others repulsed me, and this attraction, physical or mental, I was generally unable to follow up more in practically every case. With one or two exceptions, every prostitute I had intercourse with was a source of bitter disappointment and constant recriminations by my bitter, outraged nature. I worried and worried over these downfalls, as I invariably considered them after. The one or two exceptions, however, left me with no feelings of disgust or disappointment. I enjoyed them thoroughly. They were with women who had a strong attraction to me, and I would not have changed them for many a virtuous woman except for the experience of being the first. Altogether, I have not had intercourse with more than twenty women, and most of them, of the shortest, being generally driven by strong passion without a worthy object. Many a time I cursed myself, however, for ever beginning. At about the same time as my first fall, I first touched liquor. I often feel that if I had been told by my parents, I might not have taken the first downward step and waited until I could give my emotion a healthy outlet on honourable terms. As it is, I have lost something which is the cause of my condition of despair, and it will take a long, slow process of upbuilding to give me back my enthusiasm and grip on life. But events of today and yesterday give me hope and encouragement. Denver, Colorado, February 5, 1913 To go back to my story. After deciding on January 10th to commit suicide on May 10th, my troubles became worse instead of better. The will to live rebelled against this decision, and I endeavoured to drown the still small voice, and succeeded in doing so, only to have it come up again. Only one reaction in Chicago, however, amounted to anything. In my usual impulsive emotional manner, after reading Shaw's Quintessence of Ibsenism, my old feelings about art and literature returned with force augmented by the depth of the preceding condition of pessimism and hopelessness. For a week I felt like a genius, went about full of aesthetic feelings, courage. I exercised twice a day, thus conquering an habitual physical laziness, walked with a springy step, inhaling the cold air enthusiastically. In short, it was the same old story. I fed my aesthetic feelings at the art gallery, library, and theatre. I attended several performances at the Fine Arts Theatre of the Irish Players, and enjoyed their simple, honest humour. By Friday it began to peter out. Depression, unaccountable as usual, began to come over me. I shook it off, 
but it could not be gainsaid, and on Saturday night, January 25th, I attended a performance of Strindberg's Creditors and The Stronger at the Chicago Little Theatre, with ill-suppressed feelings of impending disaster, which, however, I realized, as of old, were temporary and unfounded, perhaps, but nevertheless enough to give me hours of hell, hell, hell. The circumstance agreed with my mood, and in a way awakened my ambition to have my own work performed and read, but the realization after of the work, utter lack of appreciation of such work of genius by the general English and American reading public, and moreover, the ever-present dislike and fear of going back to office work and working on from year to year to no purpose, until insanity or death ended it all, brought on all past forebodings, and I went down in the closed district, found a woman, more, too, and disgusted myself with life to the limit, went home and cursed, raved, and what not, until exhaustion brought on fitful wild slumber, and I awoke with a headache, weak, repentant, defiant, and I know not what. I might right here give the immediate supplementary cause of my suicide decision over and above those enumerated. As long as I was at work I still had hope. In Havana I was weaker, felt more poisoned physically and mentally than before or since, but the thought of artistic success sustained me. I looked forward to dropping the intolerable burden on finishing my work there, and going ahead and becoming a writer. This kept me on through it all, when I worked on sheer nerve, and every day was an agony. In blank, I still cherished the delusion, I was a genius, a superman, and would show them all. When I settled down in blank, and bought a typewriter, I started typewriting my shorthand notes, put down in Havana, describing my moods, passions, and various mental conditions, having in mind writing a book, The Youth Who Was Prematurely Tired, Mental Struggles and States. On getting down to it, however, the thought that if I was to do anything it must be done while the money I had saved by scrimping, scraping, sacrificing social life, amusement, almost everything, lasted, which would not be any too long, and then the old agony of uncongenial hellish work, this thought took away everything. The bottom fell out, and from that time on, last September and October, I have steadily lost all confidence and hope in myself, and my grip on life. The thought of going back to work, the mental state of which it had been the product, haunted me unceasingly. I dared not face the situation. I quarrelled at home, with reason, however, fled to Arthur's house in blank. The wild idea I had conceived in, of disappearing, going away secretly and suddenly returned. No matter where I turned, there seemed no refuge from my own diseased mind. Wild anarchical schemes entered my head. Now I understood why men killed, went insane. Before I had experienced passion, good and bad, honest and dishonest, clean and sane, and unclean and insane, poetic frenzy, glowing emotional enthusiasm, and now new ranges of wildness came to me. I cursed myself, my parents, heaven and earth. Then the reaction brought sorrow and spasmodic attempts at reparation. I destroyed my books and objects of fond remembrance, the next day repented and endeavoured to undo the damage. This began in Havana, continued in blank, and became worse in blank. 
Then, in a sudden impulse, I decided to go away from it all, used the excuse of going to California with my aunt, then to Chicago, which I really intended to do. In Chicago I at first felt like making a new start, but after accepting a position I had a foreboding I should fall down on it, and I cursed the social system and employing class for not offering me a living salary for just as much work as I could stand, and have leisure for writing, study, etc. Death seemed preferable to working, and dreading to go back to what it had represented in Havana and New York previous to that, I made the suicide decision. The reasons enumerated all came to me night after night as I lay awake, and I called for death. It was this dread of work that finally took the ground away from under my feet. I felt in my heart that, with a weekly income of twenty dollars to twenty-five dollars, I would persist and fight my mental disabilities, finding consolation in reading, studying, especially philosophy and writing. My idea would be not to write with the idea of making money, but of making literature. I got cold feet whenever I thought of the sordid commercialism of present American authorship. My ideas and ideals, delusions, illusions, call them what you will, were too strong to face the facts. I had wild ideas of laying my case before some rich man, or at least some institution endowed by one, seeing if they, out of pity, sympathy or some other feeling, could be induced to allow me an income of twenty to twenty-five dollars per week and not require of me definite results. I thought of going to sociologists, insanity experts, those whom we read so much about in the papers, who are always talking of reform, eugenics, social service. But the realization that these glittering generalities meant nothing to one poor, weak, degenerate individual like me deterred me. Two other reasons kept me back. The first self-respect, for, despite my weaknesses and downfalls, I still had an inordinate pride, and repulsed pity, sympathy, and felt how humiliating it would be to depend on someone else like that even were such a wild idea possible. Wild idea, indeed. I remember the letters I wrote in the heyday of my ambition and enthusiasm to Carnegie, Patton, E. H. R. Green, and several others, asking for a hearing before some board to further education, and the fact of hearing nothing. Time and again I had bitterly reflected what good is all this charity, social work. It is all general. Where does my personal case come in? Who is there to give me a little human consideration, a helping hand, encouragement, sociability, love? Reformers, women reformers, and social workers spend their efforts in closing up districts, scattering prostitutes, making it difficult to gamble, and generally taking away the means for such as me to forget our troubles now and again, but not a hand is lifted to save me from insanity or death by my own hand. Outside of this feeling of death being preferable to the humiliation and shuddering at the shocks to my sensitive nature, which would be engendered by making public this record, there was the additional feeling that, instead of freedom from the bondage of poverty resulting from such an appeal, confinement would be the result. I dread this about as much as going back to work, because the sanctity, jealous regard and fear about my personality, my individuality is such that if I thought that the result of an appeal would be confinement, I would welcome death as a gift from heaven. I am an agnostic, and, philosophically at least, an anarchist. I want to be free, to glory in liberty, 
to have no boss, to be able to develop my intellect. To do this I am willing to pay the price of keeping within the law, to refrain from indulging sexually more than seems absolutely necessary. But I cannot look forward to being fed and given a place to rest in, and otherwise allowed to develop in my own way, but not being allowed freedom of action and residence. I am not insane now, but any attempt at coercion or confinement would drive me violently insane. I should beat at the doors of my cell, curse everything and die raving, and it is the fear of confinement that keeps me from submitting this to those who could probably save me if they would. Before the day when my last dollar is gone comes, I may in desperation decide to risk this, in the hope of being allowed to live in my own way rather than commit suicide. But I don't know. End of section 6